Okay, good morning. How y'all doing this morning? <clears throat> Clearly it's the first time I've talked. Um, okay, so James chapter 4, here we go. Uh, let's jump into this. Uh, we have uh, today and tomorrow left, and so hopefully uh, James is uh, critiquing you, exhorting you, encouraging you in different ways. Um, he says this, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so he asked this question uh, to a Christian community, to a church, saying, what is it that actually creates division among you? And I don't know if you've felt this or experienced this, that in the church there's oftentimes quarrels, <clears throat> there's oftentimes divisions in the church, there are people who fight about anything and everything in the church. I never saw so many people fight until I started coming to a church. Uh, <clears throat> and I remember the first church I ever went to, uh, I was 19 years old, as I explained couple days ago and it was you know there was a, a an older pastor and uh and, and the church had kind of been set for years and years and years it was the church that Aaron grew up in and uh, after being there a year or two um the elders uh and him started fighting about something and of course that happens that oftentimes with leaders they have a bit of an ego they think they're the person that everyone's there for and blah 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 and so they came to kind of this moment where he said well you know uh, I don't like you guys anymore and so everyone likes me and so he created the vision and uh, I remember and he was Scottish <clears throat> and so I remember one night there was like this membership meeting and we all showed up to this meeting to figure out what was going to happen with this guy and the elders and um, there was a group of people standing out front handing out Scottish tartans like little ribbons and so if you supported the pastor you would put on one of these Scottish ribbons uh, and if you didn't support the pastor then oh thank you thank you sir you good looking sir there are you sleeping on behind those glasses? Um, and so, uh, and so, if you didn't support the pastor, uh, you 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 know you didn't take a tartan. But if you did, and you wanted to show you know the world that you support him, then you would take this ribbon. Uh, and so it was kind of a bizarre setting because I walked into this thing. I'm like, what is this? Is crazy? And, uh, and he got up and kind of spoke, and the people got up. People would come to the microphone screaming and yelling, and and one person got up and they just read like the passion narrative of Jesus, where Jesus is getting you know beaten and crucified. And they're like, this is what they're doing to our pastor, and blah, blah, blah. It was crazy town. Anyways, maybe some of you have been part of that. I, the church that we planted Village Church out of, um, a couple years after I was actually the, the guy who hired me, a year after I was hired, uh, he got up and, and he had some dissension and he left the church. And actually the same thing that happened in the church I was with. They, they both started churches about 20, 30 minutes away uh, from the church we were at. And so you saw families divide, you saw people divide, you saw quarrels, you saw fighting in the church, which obviously isn't ideal. And so James is saying, what actually causes these quarrels and fights among you? What is it that drives the church to fight all the time and divide all the time, or even in your life? What causes you to fight and divide with people? What causes you to actually have tension and division in your life? He says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So if you've got a Bible, underline the word passions, because literally what that word is, it's hedonase in the Greek. It's, it's where we get hedonist from. It's that, it's that when you look around the culture in the world that we live in, we say they're hedonists because they just follow their passions, whether it's crazy sex passions or greed passions or material, whatever it is, that the world is full of hedonists, people who just decide things based on what they feel is right or good and makes them feel good in a particular moment, that your passions are what get you into trouble. 
And the reality is, is the mistake we've made within Christianity is we framed Christianity against people's passions. And that's a problem because what I said yesterday, the ultimate reason you make any decision you want to make in life is because it makes you feel good. But what we do in Christianity is we frame feeling good against Christianity. And so we tell people, stop wanting to feel good, just follow Jesus. And what we mean by that is don't worry, following Jesus ain't going to feel good. You're going to have a cross on your back. You're going to be trudging along. You're going to hate life. All the things that you really like in life, uh, you're going to have to give up. And, uh, and we frame this. And then we wonder why people don't want to become Christians. Because we framed it as either Jesus or things that are good. And that's a problem. What we need to do is what one scholar calls Christian hedonism. We need to recognize that Christianity is the ultimate hedonism because we're saying what you're going to get in life is an ultimate pleasure and an ultimate joy and an ultimate delight that's going to transcend anything that's going to rust or burn or be taken away from you in this life. If you get all your passion from your boat, one day your boat's going to corrode and you know it as well as I do that someone's going to get a better boat than you and you're going to look at that and you're going to feel your boat's not good enough anymore because now the 2019 version's out, right? And it's going to be like, why am I constantly chasing this? I live in a culture like that, all right, where I live. Everyone compares the square footage to their house and what they're doing and how much money they make. And it's just one big peeing contest. Whenever you go out with guys, we're all sitting around chatting and everyone's just talking about how far they can pee and who's got the better this and that and whatever. And it's mind boggling and it's terrible, but people do it. What do you do? What's your status? How much do you make? What's your reputation? It's this big game based on hedonism, what's, what makes me feel good right now. And what it does is it shows people that we are not living as Paul talks about in Philippians 4, which is this, contentment is the actual value and character of a Christian. Meaning, Paul says, I have had a lot of money in my life and I was content. And then I've had no money in my life and I was content because contentment comes from being in Jesus who transcends the things of this world. Where's that lady from last night? Amen. Amen, thank you. Come on, somebody. <laughs> German jokes. All right, so. Okay, so your passions, and what I'm trying to tell you is what C.S. Lewis said, which is if you actually follow your passions and you don't, you, you, he said this, he said, here's our problem. This is what I want to say. If you follow your passions and your delight, ultimately those are going to lead you to Jesus versus leading you away from him. And the way Lewis put it is, is I used to think that following your passions would get you in trouble, but now I've just realized that our passions are too weak because we settle for playing in mud pies at a beach when we're being offered a holiday at sea. We settle for sex and money and food and square footage when we're being offered a kind of transcendent delight both in the now and in the future that makes these things look silly. So your passions are too weak. Follow them out to make them stronger and that's what's gonna lead you to Jesus. That's his point. So don't run away from your passions if those passions are godly because they're going to lead you to Jesus. But ungodly passions are what get you in trouble. And he says they're at war within you. And verse 1, you can circle that at war because you are at every moment in your life 
at war with these passions that are raging within you. But I want to define my life through reputation and stats. I want to define my life in this way. And that's the war you're in the midst of. So don't wake up like you're in peacetime. This is wartime. Every day there is a war for your soul, for your allegiance, for your worldview, for your life, for your time, for your money, for your family. This is a war. That is the definitive picture of the Christian life right now and what you're in the midst of. So don't just stroll through life. Because as he's about to say, you're almost dead. Like it's happening, it's going to happen any second in your life, in the scope of eternity. And so you have to be constantly in wartime mentality. And so he says, um, you desire and do not have, so you murder. I desire something, I can't get it, so I murder someone in order to get it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You want something, you want your buddy's wife. Uh, you're, 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 you want your buddy's car, your wife wants you, that life or this life, you're constantly coveting. This is why in the Ten Commandments it's like, do not cover, covet your neighbor's donkey and your stuff, their life. Constantly in our life, he says, you covet. You're always looking for the next thing. I want a better life, I want a better husband, I want a better wife, I want a better car, whatever. He says, the reason you do that, you can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel, even within yourself. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So the reason you don't have is because you're asking it for yourself. So when you're praying and you're asking God for things, go into your motive and say, what's the reason I'm actually asking this? Am I wanting to advance the kingdom or just make my life easier? That's what he's saying. And the reason you might not be getting stuff from God is because you're not actually going to do very well with it. Uh, you guys know Rick Warren? Rick Warren was a lowly pastor, planted a church in California in the end of the 70s, and hadn't, hadn't written a book that everybody bought and had heard of, and, uh, and ultimately wrote The Purpose Driven Life, probably the best-selling paperback book of all time, which means he has a lot, a lot of money. And so he talks about when he travels, he says, you know what I do in my life? I reverse tithe meaning I keep 10 and I give away 90. I drive the same pickup truck I did when I planted my church. I live in the same house I did. And he said this, do you know why God made me write the best-selling book of all time and gave me more money than I know what to do with? Because he already knew what I'd do with the money because I was already doing it when I had no money. See, when I had no money, I tied 10% of it to the church and they gave away probably 10 or 20% on top of that. He already knew what I would do with money if he gave me a lot because he saw what I did with a little. In the same way, you can't say, yeah, God, you bring me a whole bunch of money, then I'm going to start being generous. He's like, you're not going to be generous because you're not generous now, fool. So I'm not going to give you, what is your motive when you ask for things? Is it just your own comfort and your own advancement or is it actually the advancement of the kingdom? That's what he's saying. You do not have because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says this, you adulterous people, that's how to win friends and influence people. Uh, <clears throat> you adulterous people, he says right out of the gate. Look at you guys. Do you, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As a new Christian, I remember this verse standing out to me because my desire was to be liked by everybody. I wanted to be a friend of the world. I wanted reputation, status, money, to be liked by everybody. And he says, if you have those things, listen to me, you're probably doing something wrong. If everybody likes you, 
you are probably not actually doing what God's called you to do. Have you read the New Testament? Everybody, like, it's fascinating to me when I go on social media and people are like, I can't believe someone's being persecuted because they wouldn't make someone a cake and all that. And they're, you know, law courts. It's like, have you read the New Testament? Everybody went to jail and died in the New Testament. You weren't even a Christian unless you're being burned at the stake or torn apart by lions. And the book of Hebrews says that those people, the reason they died like that is because the world was not worthy of them. And the church, of course the church is going to be persecuted and people aren't going to like you. If everybody likes you, it probably means your life is not grating against anybody. I've had two emails today of people who don't like me. And it's only 1130. (laughs) That should be your new gauge on whether you're being godly or not. How many people dislike me? If the world likes you, man, you're in trouble. Because the world hates the one you serve. Hates him. Because he demands something of their life that they don't want to give up. And so if you're too worldly, he says, you've already become... And then he gives, look at the image he gives. Verse 4, you adulterous people. He calls calls us adulterers if we're friends with the world. I don't know how many of you, most of us have probably had adultery somewhere orbit around us, maybe even in your own life. The pain and the agony of a marriage where someone cheats on someone else, he says, that's the only image I can come up with. The most powerful image I can come up with is here's the deal. You want to know what your relationship with God is like? You're not just buddies with God. You're married to him. And when you decide to go after the things of the world, you're cheating on him. Like an adulterous spouse, you have said, God, you are not enough for me, so I need more reputation, more money, more comfort, more whatever. Put, your, put whatever your issue is, your struggle is, into the text. You're being adulterer. You're cheating on Jesus. Think about that. How tempting the things of the world are. I don't know if you know this. Billy Graham, I was reading this uh, a few months ago, was actually offered, this was back in like the 50s, he was offered $15 million by uh, a Republican oil man back in the day to run for president. $15 million to stop preaching and run for president. And he turned it down. because he, Which would have been a lot of money. That's a lot of money now. Could have much more money in the 50s. And he said, I'm turning it down because I want to be a preacher. On a far less scale, I was talking about my buddy and I were, were at with this guy the other day. And he says to me, he's a business guy, so I'm not sure he really thought through what he was saying. But he said to me, hey, listen, I've been going to your church for a while and I watch you do these presentations. And my question to you is, do you have a photographic memory? And I'm like, I probably somewhere, I don't know if it's actually photographic, but I can remember things. He's like, okay. And then I watch you do these presentations and you wow everybody up and you can woo people to stuff, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, what's your point? He's like, man, if you worked in my business, you'd probably be paid $4 million a year. And I'm like, I'm handing in my resignation to him. All right, it's like, don't say that to a pastor. All right, because then it's like, hmm, what shall I do? All right, because here's the thing. You can do what God's called you to do, or you can go be friends with the world. But you can't do both. Because Jesus is better than money. And Jesus is better than fame and comfort and reputation and social status and all that. That's his point. But the minute you start making decisions for the sake of the things of the world, you've lost perspective on the things of the will of God. That's what he's trying to say. So be very careful in your life to not, when you choose sin over Jesus, you become an adulterer. You don't just become someone who's, you know, engaging in some little thing and then coming back to him. So, it says, verse 4, 5, or do you suppose 
It is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Listen to all of this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about your own heart, your own mind, and your own life. Are you proud or are you humble? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Can I just give a, like a potent example on that phrase, submit yourself, because oftentimes we don't talk about this, because we often just talk about beliefs, but James, of course, is book talking about actually doing stuff. Submit yourself. Um, the word Islam comes from the word in the Arabic to submit yourself to God. That's what Islam literally means. So I use that because I think it's a very powerful image. How do you and I think about Muslims? We think about people who are so sold out. They'll go on a prayer mat five times a day in the middle of chapter. Like I walked into chapters one day. There was a Muslim just rolled out his prayer mat. Boom. And he just started praying. Um, people who will jump on an airplane, hijack it, and fly into buildings. They'll blow themselves up and their children. That's called commitment. Think about that image. And James is telling you, what kind of obedience do you have? Now, I'm not, of course, I'm not rallying you to go kill people. I'm saying, would you go as far to say, I submit my whole life, my body, my mind, my finance, my life, everything about me is so submitted that I'm as zealous as the kinds of people who would give their life for this. That's what he's saying. That's why obedience is the mother of the knowledge of God, as we've been talking about. And so he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Not just believe in him, but submit yourself to him. And then he says, um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Which is fascinating because we tend to think of the devil as some all-powerful being who can come in and storm your life and, and control you. And we have all these images of him and we're scared and we're fearful that, you know, I read books back in like the 80s and they were written in the 80s of Christians and, oh, look, the devil was drawing things on my mirror and talking to me at night and all this. And look at how scared and cowardice and powerless he is. Resist him and what? He'll flee from you. There's animals that don't do that, right? There's a, there's a catfish, all right, swimming around out front and my kids are terrified of it. And so that thing, it, that thing will just stay there even if they resist it. Think how weak Satan is, he's saying. You resist him, he'll actually flee from you because he's, he's a coward and he doesn't know what to do. Listen, that's how easy it is. That's his point. That's how easy it is. Resist him. Ignore the whisper that tells you, hey, you're never going to defeat this temptation, so you might as well just give into it right now because it's not worth your time and energy. That's a whisper he gives you, and he says, resist it because it's a lie. Resist it because it's a lie. He's that easy to beat. And he's not even smart. Read John Stott's commentary on Acts. He says, the devil's been using the exact same things to divide the church from the beginning. Persecution and division from within. It's either external or internal, and usually the best way is internal because Christians will just completely destroy themselves if you give them enough time. Why? Because they're not fighting. They're not in the battle. They're not moving forward. And what you do when you're not moving forward, think about your marriage. If you don't, I talk about this at a marriage conference that my wife and I do. The mission of marriage is obviously to do godly things, to use your marriage for kingdom, blah, blah, blah. If all you think your mission is is for the two of you to be happy 
and you're not looking out and going, how do we serve the poor? How do we do kingdom? How do we use our house for hospitality? How do we do this? And all it is is how do we make sure we like each other? Then what's going to happen is you're going to be like people. Instead of fighting the Germans in World War II. Sorry, I'm beating up on the Germans the last couple of days. Um, instead of fighting the Nazis in World War II, what you start to do when you're just sitting around and there's no fighting out there, what do you end up doing? You've seen that scene in Sid and Private Ryan. They have no one to fight and they all start turning on each other. Right? And they just start putting guns in each other's faces. I'm going to shoot your face right now. I'm going to shoot. I, and they, you all stay hating each other. It happens in marriage. If, you don't have a, if you're fighting all the time, it may be because you have no mission that's moving forward outside the two of you being happy. That is not the mission of your marriage. And if you think it is, you end up turning guns against each other because you ain't busy enough. And what he's saying is this is what happens to the church is you start quarreling in amongst yourself because you're not on mission moving forward. And so he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then there's this positive, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think that's beautiful. It's not just a, sometimes we pitch Christianity. I remember when I went to uh, Christian summer camp when I was nine years old. Some of you experience this. You've heard this pitch before. I literally, we went to summer camp, so they ran us really tired Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then Friday night, got us all in front of a fire. It was called Turner Burn Friday. And they would get up and they would tell the kids, here's a fire. They'd pour a little gasoline on it. It would go up in flames. And they'd say, here's the problem. Hell's full of flames. And you're all going to go there for eternity unless you say this prayer. And what kid at that point is going to go, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Right? The counselors are all accepting Christ at that point. Whatever mantra gets me out of those flames, I'm in. The problem with that kind of picture of Christianity is it's a negative, not a positive. It's a move away from, not a move toward. But Christianity sticks when you're 25 in the midst of temptation, not because you ran from hell, but because you what? Drew near to him. That you actually love him and like him, and you're not just running from something. That's how it actually sticks. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection. And he says the way the human heart works is it can never just stop doing a sin. It needs to start, it needs to replace an idol, not just stop doing an idol. It needs to actually get something that trumps the idol, and that's the only way it stops. So you can't just kind of say, stop doing this, stop doing this sin, stop doing this sin. You have to love something more. And the illustration I often give of this is when I was smoking, I loved smoking. Nothing was going to make me stop smoking. And then I met my wife. She told me she didn't like smoking. It did take five years. But ultimately, I stopped smoking because a love for her trumped the love that I had for smoking. And when you're facing sin in your life, you got to realize just focusing on the sin will not help you defeat it. You have to love Jesus more than you love your greed. That's the only thing that's going to do it. So he says, draw near to God. And then listen to this beautiful. Look at, I mean, let this blow your mind. This is not, this is not small. And he will draw near to you. The, the God of the universe, the minute you move toward him, like the prodigal son story, the minute that kid started running back, the father runs out to him. No religion has that. Let me tell you the beauty of this. So that catfish thing I was just talking about, I'm sitting again down at the beach trying to be godly and prep my thoughts for today. And the devil came in, all right? I'm sitting there reading my Bible, and my two kids run up to me. They're like, Bella's, who's my youngest, uh, seven years old. She's on the top of the, the, the water slide, the big, you know, padded one. Um, she won't go down. She's screaming her head off because 
there's a catfish in the water. All right. So she, someone told her this. Some moron <laughs> said there's some catfish in the water. Now she terrified him. And so um, I'm like, oh my goodness. So they're screaming their head out for 10 full minutes. I mean, I didn't watch them do it for 10 minutes. That would be odd. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, fine. So I walk out to the thing and I stand on the thing and I'm like, look, come on, come on. They're like, no, daddy, there's a catfish just down. I can't do it, daddy, please. And two of them are up there creating mythologies, <laughs> stories about what this catfish is going to do. They're going to suck their toes off, eat their face. I'm like, guys, just come down. And they're crying and screaming and they won't do it and they won't do it. You know the only way they went down? What do you think happened? You Daddy, get in the water. Get in the water. But why did they do that? Because I guess the catfish can eat me first and then they can scram. I don't know why. But the minute I got in the water and I, and I swam over to them, both of them, boom, jumped in the water. And it was me beside them, swimming them over to the dock that got them up. Listen, that's the picture of incarnation. That's the picture of he will draw near to you. That's what you get out of this God. He doesn't stay distant like the gods of Islam. He doesn't not exist like the God of Buddhism. He doesn't say he enters into the pain and the tragedy and the joy and the celebration of your life. The only a worldview that says this God actually doesn't stay distant. He comes alongside of you. He enters in to face the battle for you so that you don't have to. It's beautiful. Don't let that verse be lost in you. And then it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. I love this. <laughs> we don't even have a category for sinner anymore. We don't even talk about it. And Robert Bella, who's a philosopher, said we're way worse off as a culture for it because if you, if you search out the psychological literature, it has removed the category of sin and it has left our Western world without an understanding of the explanation of why they feel the shame and the guilt and the pain they do and why when they look around, people rape and destroy and kill and murder and they have no category called sin. So all it does is it burdens Western culture down with an explanation they can't give and it psychologically destroys us and Christianity comes in the midst of it and goes, you sinners, let me give you a category for what's wrong with you, why you feel empty and lost in the world. It's because you're sinful and you're broken and that's why Jesus came. And so he says, cleanse your hands. Now recognize how, how um, practical that is. Can I, just, can I just say something to you? If over the last four days you have felt convicted about certain things in your life, cleanse your hands, meaning actually do something about it. Like I was talking about last night, habits are going to start informing the way that you think. So if you in your life say, you know what, um, I, I lust too much, then figure out a way to deal with it. Figure out computer codes or whatever you need to do. If you feel like you're too materialistic and you order too many things from Amazon, then go home and say, you know what, I'm going to do one order a week. I'm going to limit myself to what Amazon's going to come to the door once a week. And it means I'm going to discipline myself. It means I'm not going to have just boom, just, oh, I feel like that today. 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 Because like you don't need it. Amen. All right, she was sleeping. <laughs> so figure, cleanse your hands. Do something about it. Figure out little steps along the way, whatever your sin is. Go home and actually say, here's a step, here's a strategy, let's be practical, versus just going, well, that was great, and I'm back home, and nothing about me changed. So he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
be wretched and mourn and weep. There's going to be times in your life where you're going to mourn and weep. There's going to be awfulness. That's okay. Let your laughter, on the other hand, be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom when you understand something that he's about to tell you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Meaning, sometimes, guys, I know you're always celebrating. I know you're always having fun. I know things are good for you. But the reality behind the reality is you're spiritually poor, so you better be more gloomy about your spiritual state than you feel on the outside. That's what he's saying. He's forcing you to be gloomy. I love this. He's forcing you to say to yourself, even when it feels good, maybe something's wrong. Like behind the veil, maybe something's wrong. And he's about to tell you what's wrong. Because he's going to say, if you always feel good about yourself, you're proud. You have pride. So you better be humble and recognize your actual spiritual condition. And he says this, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Again, he says the power of words, right? Have you guys seen the movie, The, uh, the, the Darkest Hour with Churchill? Right, the Churchill movie? All right, the last line of that uh, movie is brilliant. And Churchill goes into the parliament and none of them want to do what he does. And he gets up and he rants on and on and he does what he did. He was a brilliant man. And he got up and he tell, he gets parliament all riled up to do what he wants to do. Go to war and blah, 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 blah. He does all of that. And at the end of it, all of parliament is like, boom, they're in to what Churchill wants to do. And the last line of the movie, the guy looks at me and goes, how did he just do that? And he says these words, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. That's power. And that's the power of your words. You're speaking them against one another. And he says the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Be careful when you judge the Bible because it's going to judge you in the end. Be careful when you think you're so smart. I tell this story in... Uh, in the, the, my book, in the, the Bible chapter, about a whole generation of people who said the Bible is not legitimate because there wasn't some pool that was mentioned in John 5, and ergo the Bible's a joke and it lies and it doesn't know history and archaeology. And everyone drop kicked their Bible and left it and said, We don't care about the Bible, it's got so many mistakes. And then a few years later, they did more archaeological digs and they found exactly that pool, exactly described as it is in John 5. And you can go there today. I went there 10 years ago and visited myself, and I'm sitting there thinking about a generation of people who said, I don't even like the Bible and it's a joke because they hadn't dug a little more. And the point is, is be very careful in your pride to judge the scriptures when over and over and over again, archaeologically and historically, they've been vindicated and legitimized and ultimately the God behind them will judge you if you come at them and say, it's stupid, it's dumb, it's full of contradictions. Almost every contradiction that the Bible supposedly has has been actually explained. And so he says, be very careful. And then he says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to serve, to save and destroy. We oftentimes don't think of God as a destroyer, but that's what he does. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then he ends like this. It's a very humble note. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I don't know if you've ever talked like that. Probably. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is why the Bible says it's far better to go to a wedding or to a funeral than a wedding. Because you go to a wedding and you party and you have fun and you forget the spiritual state of your soul. You go to a funeral and you say, what is important in life? 
Where's my soul at? Is eternity a thing? Why did this tragedy happen? You ask far better questions at a funeral than a wedding in regard to your eternal state. And he says, be very careful. Be very careful. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So don't go around and think you're going to be alive tomorrow. We all know people who thought exactly that and they were gone. Be very humble. And then he says what you're going to be guilty of is not... There's two kinds of sin in the Bible. There's sins of commission, which is the sins that you do, and there's sins of omission, which are things you didn't do in the end. You didn't help the widows and the orphans. You didn't do the things that God asked you to do. It's still sin. It's not just stuff you do. I'll leave you with this parable from Luke chapter 12. And it's almost like James has this parable from Jesus in his brain when he writes this chapter, and then I'll pray for us. It says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Father, I pray that that kind of story and this kind of text actually critiques us and puts our hearts and souls and minds, including starting with mine, on trial. What does it mean to be rich toward you? Not only for people who just actually need to believe in you for the first time, but people who have believed in you for many years and actually need to be rich toward you versus rich toward the things of the world. That that kind of pride that says, tomorrow I will do this. Tomorrow I will store this up. I will relax, eat, drink, and be merry in the contentment of the things of the world. Let the fragility of our own life just be really apparent to us. That you are the God who at some point, whether we're 45, 85, 25, whatever it is, as we've all known people who at all different times and dates and ages and spheres and moments in their life, you said, it's over. Now you give an account. And that when we stand before you, we would understand that we should not choose to stand before you on our own merit and on our own works, but on the works of Jesus and on the merit of Jesus. Because the other will destroy us. And it's not good enough. Let us understand that to the core of our being and live in light of it. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.